Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. This week's show comes in three parts. It'll begin with an interview with a couple of experimental psychology researchers at the University of Louisville. Then Professor Scott Miller will tell us something about recycling, both at home and in the cosmos. And then I'll finish up with some quick science news on the fly. But first, let's hear this on-site interview with two research scientists in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Louisville. Catherine McDermott and Nuna Olison are both graduate research assistants in the UofL Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. They are helping run the Developing Scientist program at UofL. This science outreach program is doing important work. It's geared towards teaching children and their parents about experimental psychology. We're honored to have Amanda Fuller, the executive director of the Kentucky Academy of Science, conducting this interview. They start the story in the Developing Scientist Laboratory itself, describing some of the experiments they do with the kids and the parents. Then you'll hear them walking over to an adjoining lab to discuss the question of getting children to recognize the difference between primary literature and secondary literature and tertiary literature. Primary literature consists of the research papers, the conference proceedings that scientists actually publish, That's where the original experiment is described, the data is provided, the interpretations are given. Then there's secondary literature. That's represented by things like literature review and textbooks and handbooks, which are still being written by academics. And then there's the tertiary literature. Those are the interpretations of research that you find in magazine articles and websites and social media and even this radio show, I guess. The tertiary literature is a great way, an interesting way, to find out what's going on in the world of science, but sometimes they can get it wrong or they'll just be oversimplifying the story. There's nothing better than getting it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, and that's the primary literature. And I think it's neat that they're encouraging young people to see the difference. So here is Amanda Fuller introducing these two science educators. The Developing Scientists Program is a science outreach program at the University of Louisville teaching young people about experimental psychology, and it's really fun. Let's go check it out. Ready, set, go. Yellow, blue, orange, black, red, green, purple, yellow, red, orange, green, black, blue, red, purple, green, blue, orange. This is Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science, and... I'm with the Developing Scientist Program at the University of Louisville doing a special report for Bench Talk. Hi, I'm Catherine McDermott from the Psychology Department. And I'm Nona Olison. Great. We're going to walk around the laboratory and see a little bit about what they do here. All right. So when we do our program, we typically take them through the lab. And one of the reasons that we think that our field is exciting and accessible for young students is because working with kids and babies is a lot of fun. Some labs have to be kind of bare in, you know, white walls, nothing on the walls. 
But as you can see, we have butterflies and bird stickers and airplanes. Um, yeah, I see toys on the shelf over there, lots of games to play with. Yep. This meeting room over here has colorful furniture and it yeah. looks like a place that's very kid friendly. Yeah, so it's very warm and inviting, which we think makes it fun for young girls and boys when they come in. And, and how old are the program. how old are the kids who come? The kids who participate mm -hmm. in the developing scientist program are like 10ish to I think the oldest we've had is yeah, 15ish, but yeah. we're open to go up to 16 or 17. Okay. And we like kids. That's kind of why we started the program. We're both used to working with kids, and we really like science. And we just saw this gap of programs. You know, there was nothing really out there for kids if they wanted to see an actual lab. And realistically, a lot of cognitive labs aren't that fun yeah. to tour. Yeah. <laughs> just because, like Catherine said, they have to be really bare. There can't be pictures on the wall because they might influence, yeah, how you're thinking about something or they might influence your answers. And with kids, it almost is the opposite where it has to be inviting and warm because it has to entertain them a little bit yeah. to get them to stay and participate. So our labs are fun to yeah. do tours in. And we, so we, our program right now is for girls and boys, but we really want to target middle school age girls because that is when they tend to lose interest in the STEM fields. And we want to make sure that they know that there are STEM fields that they can definitely pursue and that there are research fields like psychology and cognitive development that might not always be discussed as STEM fields, but that are. These are our testing rooms. Um, so we have our under the water room that we showed to kids. So there's... Oh, there's fish on the wall, there's crabs, yeah. it's all blue. And then there's a coral. Is our sky room, so. Oh, look at this. We have hot air balloons, clouds. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. Colorful furniture. Very <laughs> colorful. And then we do the majority of our program in our conference. One of the tasks that we do with the kids and their parents do it a lot of times too, is the Stroop task. So, and what does Stroop mean? So Stroop is the name of the person who created the tablet. Okay. Yes. So I'll kind of explain what the stimuli we're holding up looks like, and then we'll have you do the task. So we show them a sheet of paper that has the names of different colors, but the colors that the words are written in don't match the actual color. Right. So the first word is yellow, but it's in green ink. It's in green letters. Yes. And the next one says blue, but it's in red letters. And yes. it's a big block. Yeah. Of these. Right. So. It's the whole page is full of these words that are the names of the colors, but they're all not in the right color. <laughs> yes. So, so I then, can see how this is a little trick on your brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what we do then is we time the kids and their parents. And the first time what you're going to do is you're going to read the word. Mm -hmm. So you're going to go through and read the word and we'll time you. And then the second time you're going to say the color. Then. <laughs> okay. So we'll see then what your difference is in terms of timing. Actually, Catherine and Nona are going to yes. make me run this Sorry. test. So we'll see how I do. <laughs> All right. Are we? Okay. Say go. So ready, set, go. Yellow, blue, orange, black, red, green, purple, yellow, red, orange, green, black, blue, red, purple, green, blue, orange. So this time you'll read the color that was in. So you'll say the color. Say the color. Okay. Yeah. All right. Ready, set, go. Green, red, blue, yellow, blue, black, red, blue, green, black, red, yellow, green, blue, black, blue, red, green. 
That was pretty that good. That was really yeah. good. I think I had, by hearing you describe it, yes, it made it easier ready. for me to think yeah. about it that way. But if I hadn't been thinking about it for a few seconds before I did it, I can see how that would be very challenging. This one's fun for kids because I think they think they're going to be really good at it, mm, yeah. and then they try it, and it's much harder than they think it is. And what's going on here? So what's the science behind this? So basically, when you're reading the words, by the time we're good readers, reading comes kind of automatic. So we're reading the words and we're going really, really fast. And our brain basically does that automatically. But when you have to stop that automatic process and kind of fight it Mm -hmm. to say the color, Mm -hmm. it's a lot more difficult. So you're having to control (laughs) that you would normally just automatically read the word because that's where your brain goes. And you have to instead say the color. And so you're... So are we retrieving a different... Retrieving colors or in a different part of the brain? Or what do we know about how the brain works that helps us understand how this is so hard to do? So really, I think the phenomena here and what makes this so cool is that it is all about reading. And so it really doesn't have too much to do with the colors. It's just that reading is much more automatic than saying the color. So actually, there are subsets of individuals who are really good at the Struve mm-hmm. test. So younger kids are actually really good at it. That's Because they're not great readers yet. Yeah. So oh, it does Because the reading fear. process is not as automatic yet. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And people who speak two languages are oh, also good at this. Interesting. Where yeah. English is a second language. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. Because it's reading, especially in English, might not already be as automatic. Yeah. So, like, they that makes sense. could still be fantastic readers in English. Right, but if I'm reading, if <laughs> I'm reading in a language that I don't understand as well, of course I'm not going to read exactly. quite as fast. So the marshmallow task is basically what happens is a child is given one marshmallow mm-hmm. and told that if they can wait a certain amount of time, usually like 10 minutes, they'll get a second marshmallow if they don't eat the first one. Mm-hmm. So we have some cute marshmallow task videos that we show to kids, and while we're showing it to them, we have them sitting with a marshmallow in front of them. And so, we give them two after. So. so you're showing them a video about other people doing this yeah. activity. Yeah. Okay. So because our kids are usually older when they're yeah. mm-hmm. participating, mm-hmm. We, we know that they have the impulse control. Mm-hmm. They can usually wait, even though we did have a seven-year-old sibling in the other day yes. that had a lot of marshmallows. <laughs> waiting, he, waiting he really wanted that marshmallow, marshmallow, but he made it. <laughs> But it's kind of just fun and mm-hmm. a, not a real snack, but, yeah. you know, just something <laughs> And it's a chance for people to learn by showing them that video, yeah. too, about the experiment. Then people learn the background of it. And yeah. so we'll make them wait longer. So we'll give it to them when they come in, mm-hmm. when we bring them up. Mm-hmm. And then we'll go through all of our beginning stuff where we're like, can anybody tell us what psychology is? Can anybody tell us what cognition is? And, you know, we go through kind of what these fundamental words that they're going to be hearing the rest Mm -hmm. of the program are. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, we talk about, oh, I thought psychology was studying people. And it's like, oh, it's actually, you know, the study of the brain. And so we talk about, you know, some people think psychology is this, some people think it's this. And then we go through these videos, and so they wait that whole time. So it's not the five to ten minutes. So that's yeah. what I was wondering. If you put the marshmallow in front of me, I'm not sitting here in an empty room staring no, yeah, at the marshmallow. It's a lot easier yes. than okay. a real marshmallow. Because that's a different experience. Yes. yes. Especially for a four-year-old. Right, exactly. Yeah. For a young, yeah. for a young yeah. child. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's more fun than a real. <laughs> yeah. Than the real marshmallow yeah. task. I think everybody's made it. Nobody's eaten their yeah. marshmallow. What are some things that you learn that you really love about this program? 
So one of the things is how much some of these young girls and boys already know about psychology. For me, I don't remember having any formal schooling in psychology until I was in maybe 11th grade. And they have a lot of background knowledge, and whether it's from... Like brain games. Mm -hmm. You know, they've seen videos. They've seen... There's a lot of TV shows now that have yeah. what we would consider and originally were like psychological tasks mm -hmm. <laughs> and tests, you know, that they use as fun TV shows now for kids. Yeah. So it's it's cool to see how much they know. And then it's also fun to supplement that information with this is that field as it actually is. And also it is attainable to go into something mm -hmm. like this, especially if they're already interested which let's be real, they usually are. They're yeah, coming to our program. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the other exciting thing is seeing how interested young girls and boys are yeah. in thinking about kind of future careers. And they really do ask great questions. R like, really why questions. did you get into the field? What's your favorite thing to do? What do you do on a daily basis? Things that I definitely don't remember thinking about mm -hmm. when I was their age, but they're on it and they're interested and that's really rewarding. For our radio or our podcast listeners, mm -hmm. how can people get in touch with you? You can reach us by email at developingscientistprogram at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram and a Facebook, and those are both developing scientists is how you can find us. And what we try and do on those, which we think is a lot of fun, is highlight local scientists because we have a lot of scientist friends. And so we try and put up posts where we basically highlight scientists in different fields at UofL or in the Louisville community and include some fun facts about them. So, you know, what they do outside of their outside research. Of their work, yeah. We really want to be a resource, so we hope that kids and parents will follow us, and then if they're interested in that specific field that one of our local scientists is in, we can kind of get them together and get them talking. So then the other thing we try to end our program with is um, kind of talking to students about clickbait headlines. Science in the media. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that will say something like, one of ours is, like, coffee helps you live longer, yeah. which is a pretty appealing headline for most of us. <laughs> yes, that would be great. And so then what we do is we take them through the news article where that was found, and we try and locate the original study. So usually they'll say something like research done out of whatever university. So then we kind of tell them a little bit about Google Scholar yeah. and how you would look up these articles. For a lot of them, they've never heard of Google Scholar before. Mm -hmm. So tell us for our radio listeners, too. Tell people what is that and how would they use it? Sure. Yeah, so Google Scholar is really great. Um, you can just, I think it's scholar.google. Yeah. and you just go and it actually will link you to real research articles. It takes you straight to the actual cited scientific articles. So then we take them through the actual research article, which is a lot of fun because usually there's maybe one sentence that pertains to the mm -hmm. headline. The claim on the, the headline. Article. Yes, and the one sentence is usually very mild, something along the lines of it's possible that X may correlate with Y, and then it turns into... Coffee makes you live longer. Yeah. So in the coffee one, I think it actually says that coffee, it's almost a double negative, where yes. it says coffee doesn't not make you live longer. Yeah, yeah. Coffee, coffee doesn't, it doesn't shorten it, your yeah, life. Yeah, it doesn't yes. shorten your life expectancy, and, and I then think that it got says flipped. It might not. It might not. It's, yeah. And so we, we try and just give them the skills to mm -hmm. go and find the actual research. That um, is really valuable. Yeah. I think a lot of people who use computers every day would find that yeah, a yeah. really useful exercise. Absolutely. Yes. And it's also good because 
I think we can all agree that lately science isn't necessarily looked upon well in the media and that sometimes it's kind of vilified, at least lately in the media. And I think a lot of kids, you know, they might not have those skills to know that science just isn't scary. Yeah, I just mm-hmm. need to yeah, fact check or look something myself. up. And a lot of times if you Google those things, you'll just keep getting the same headlines and the same, (laughs) you know, reinforcing um, headlines and searches. And so that's kind of the point of the program is science isn't scary. It can seem daunting, but there are ways to check this stuff for yourself. And if you see a headline like that, maybe it's true, but that's a really strong claim. So maybe we should look Mm -hmm. into it a little bit more. Find the article and then skip to the conclusions section and read that. It may be written in plain enough language that you understand what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Conclusion sections are good for that. They're, they're usually trying to write in a little bit more of an understandable way. Many thanks to Nuna Olison and Catherine McDermott for telling us about this neat developing scientist program at UofL. And thanks especially to Amanda Fuller of Kentucky Academy of Science for organizing and conducting this interview. Next is Professor Scott Miller telling us about recycling in the stars. Scott here. Recycling. A word that can evoke responsibility or ambivalence. Some people like to or want to be part of it. Others don't care. Unfortunately, local government can play a role in creating such ambivalence. As part of my research for this program, I attempted to find something on a local, unnamed, city's website under Public Works, and had to work quite hard to finally hunt down something in writing about the residential recycling program. As one who participated in that program when I lived there, even I would be discouraged by this hide-and-seek game. And why bother recycling anyway? I can go to a store, whether a grocery store or any other retailer, and find goods, have them wrapped in some form and head for home. There doesn't seem to be a shortage of anything, so why bother to recycle? Well, after doing the digging I mentioned on the unnamed city's website, I found that there is a link provided there as to some of the reasons one should consider recycling. On the list one finds, conserve Earth's limited natural resources, save money by reducing unnecessary purchases and reusing items, reduce the need for landfills, reduce ecosystem destruction, reduce the energy necessary to produce new goods, decrease greenhouse gas emissions, create jobs, especially in the recycling centers and the transportation industry, and finally, sustain the environment for future generations. All of these are valid points, and it would be interesting to listen to one not recycling refute any of these, though I myself do see one that seems to run counter to the other, but I digress. One on the list, which I feel should be higher on the list but appears last, is sustain the environment for future generations. That one and the first, conserve Earth's limited natural resources, have a reach beyond common sense. In a real sense, in fact, these reasons have an astronomy connection. Recycling is not a new idea, but one that has been put into play for billions of years. In fact, one can go back to the formation of the first stars. The Big Bang produced the conditions for simple elements, primarily hydrogen and helium, to be formed as the newly formed universe slowly cooled. As the universe cooled, gravity could overcome the thermal energy between particles that kept them apart, recycling that hydrogen and helium into massive spheres of gas, the first stars. It is estimated that huge clouds of gas collapsed into galaxies and 
the gas within those further collapsed into individual stars, with the first stars possibly having masses upwards of about 150 times the mass of the Sun. The more massive a star, the shorter its lifetime. That seems kind of counterintuitive, because one would think that the more mass a star had, the more mass it could use for energy production. But supporting all that mass requires intense energy production, which in turn uses up all that fuel that much faster. So higher mass leads to shorter lifetimes. So how do stars make their energy? They use controlled nuclear fusion. The hydrogen which makes up the majority mass of stars, because it was the majority gas coming out of the Big Bang, can be used to form helium. Stars much more massive than the Sun, like these first generation stars, can then take that helium and use it as a fuel. This continues with each subsequent fusion process creating heavier and heavier nuclei of atoms. Iron becomes the last of the fusion byproducts because it takes energy to fuse iron, the very thing the star does not need to do. The result is a rapid core collapse, a subsequent shock wave otherwise known as a supernova. During the explosive process of a supernova, conditions are created for other elements to be created. All the elements on the periodic table, save those low-mass elements like hydrogen and helium that started it all, can be created in this process. And this is spewed out into the surrounding galaxy and its gas clouds, polluting them with heavy elements and providing a shock wave that can cause those gas clouds to collapse and produce even more stars. By the time the third generation of stars was created, quite a bit of this heavy element trash was available for recycling not only into stars, but planets orbiting those stars. The planets of our solar system, along with the satellites that orbit them, the comets that we occasionally see drifting by us in their orbit around the Sun, the asteroids, the meteoroids, all of these are made from the material once forged and long ago dead stars. Here on Earth, water made of recycled hydrogen and oxygen was delivered by comets that formed from the leftover debris used to create the planets, recycling that unused material in the process. Eventually, conditions on Earth were such that some of that recycled material became self-aware. Life had appeared on this planet, made from this recycled material. As Carl Sagan famously put it, we are made of star stuff. We are a way for the cosmos to know itself. Hydrogen and helium gravity in the stars that form from these have been recycling since shortly after the beginning of the universe. They, unlike us, have done so almost altruistically, unselfishly if one can ascribe such characteristics to inanimate objects. That said, what arguments can be provided by those who do not recycle, humans for which these characteristics can be ascribed, but are not always acted on? Which brings us back to those two arguments I mentioned that can be tied to astronomy. The verse said, conserve Earth's limited natural resources. Astronomy teaches us that indeed there are limited resources here. The Earth is not a star. It cannot reproduce within itself that material we use for our comforts and needs. And if we change that raw material into useless form, we are reducing the limited resources imparted to the Earth in its creation from the raw material of those long dead stars. The second argument, sustain the environment for future generations, is also tied to astronomy and related to the first. If we want human life forms to continue to exist on this planet as the highest form of humanoid that has evolved to this point, 
it is necessary to make sure the environment remains such as to continue that potential for even more evolution of humanoids. The depletion of the fixed natural resources of Earth, along with the increase of pollution that has allowed us to convert raw material into something useful for us, means that we are ignoring the fact that the stars made a limited amount of material out of which the Earth formed, and ultimately it formed us. And we do so at our own peril, and that of all living species on this planet. Thanks much, Scott. Now, we've got a couple more minutes for some science news on the fly. How about this? There's a lunar landing planned for this week. Israel has joined the race to explore the moon now. There's a small Israeli spacecraft called the Bereshit. It just entered an orbit around the moon, and it's planning on landing on the far side of the moon on Thursday, April 11th. Now, just getting a satellite to orbit the moon is quite an accomplishment, as only the United States, the former Soviet Union, China, Japan, India, and the European Union have even accomplished that so far. This satellite bear sheet was built by a non-profit group in Israel. Originally, they were aiming to win the $20 million Google Lunar X Prize, but the deadline for that prize passed last year. If the moon landing on April 11th is successful, Israel will be just the fourth country to do that following the United States, the former Soviet Union, and China. China just landed their latest robot on the moon earlier this year, and India is planning to put their own lunar lander down on the moon this summer. Now that the space race appears to be heating up again, the Trump administration just announced that it would like to have American astronauts walking on the moon again by 2024. But it appears that Congress is balking a little bit about the cost of this effort. If you'd like to know more about what's planned for space exploration this year, catch our podcast on that topic from our New Year's Eve broadcast of December 31st, 2018. That particular broadcast was specifically devoted to what's going to be happening in space exploration this year. Whales have been in the news recently, and it's all pretty bad. There's a dead whale that was found washed ashore on a beach in the Philippines that when it was cut open, they found 88 pounds of plastic inside its body. The whale had apparently taken in that plastic quite a while ago because some of it was really compacted inside the body like a brick. The problem with whales ingesting plastic is that it gives them a false sensation of being full and it doesn't provide the nutrients they need to live. It leads to a reduction in body weight, energy levels, their swimming speed goes down, makes them more vulnerable to predation. This is something like the fourth dead whale reported recently to be found with large amounts of plastic inside of them. There was one found in Thailand in 2018 with 18 pounds of plastic in it, and a sperm whale was reported in Indonesia with 13 pounds of plastic. It was a thousand pieces of plastic, including cups, bags, bottles, and flip-flops. Another whale was found on the coast of Spain this year that contained 64 pounds of trash in its stomach and intestines. A 2015 study reported that some 13 million tons of trash gets put into the Earth's ocean each year. China, Indonesia, and the Philippines appear to be the world's biggest contributor of plastic to our oceans, so that might be one reason why so many of these whales are showing up washed ashore in Southeast Asia. 
Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.